Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. While it has been more than 60 years since the death of Senator Joseph McCarthy, journalist Larry Tai sees many parallels between his rapid political rise and methods and how President Trump governs. Larry Tai joins us to talk about his new biography of McCarthy, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. The book draws on newly revealed private correspondence and military records to provide a fuller picture of the senator and his infamous methods. And that's all next after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. A new biography about Senator Joseph McCarthy taps into recently released transcripts of closed-door congressional hearings to shed light on the senator's life and his 1950s anti-communist crusade. Journalist and author Larry Tai joins us to talk about his book, Demagogue, The Life and the Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, and describe the parallels he sees between McCarthy and President Donald Trump. And welcome, Larry Tai. Good to have you back with us on forum. Great to be back with you. Also want to uh, mention that uh, Larry Ty was back with us when he did a biography of Bobby Kennedy. And this biography, like the biography of Bobby Kennedy, is pretty multidimensional portrait. Uh, sort of charm and evil go together here. I wanted to mention before we begin talking about Joe McCarthy and his legacy that he was a genuine war hero, though he inflated his record. He was a Marine. He was a lawyer. He was a judge. And by the age of 38, he was a senator of Wisconsin. I want to say to begin, though, Larry, that few people have isms after their names, as you point out. Let's talk about what McCarthyism is and perhaps also what it isn't, uh, because it's become identified with so many things, including demagoguery. Sure. So I think this ism um, is a symbol and a synonym for everything from reckless accusation and guilt by association to fear mongering and political double dealing. Joe McCarthy wasn't the first one to engage in red baiting, but he did it with a sense of abandon and with a sense of 
being willing to trample over not just the rights of people who came before him as witnesses, but the trample over his assailants in a way that nobody had had quite the chutzpah in doing any time before. And let's talk about where this all began. We go back to Wheeling, West Virginia, February 1950, and McCarthy had a couple of speeches in his briefcase and decided, uh, as destiny would have it, to, well, take one speech that uh, he necessarily uh, opted for as opposed to the other. Sketch that for us. Sure. So he is going to Wheeling, West Virginia on the night of February uh, 9th, 1950, when Republicans all across the country are holding fundraisers to honor the patron saint of their party, Abraham Lincoln. And prominent Republicans who look like they're going somewhere, going somewhere, are invited to places, places like New York and Boston, San Francisco and Washington. Ones like Joe McCarthy that look like they're on their way to losing their battle for reelection and going nowhere end up in places like Wheeling, West Virginia. And he shows up there that night basically looking for any way that he can to put himself on the political map and give himself a shot at reelection. And he, as you say, he has in his briefcase two speeches. One is a snoozer on national housing policy, which is something he actually knew a bit about. And had he delivered that speech there that night, 70 years later, we wouldn't be talking about him. But instead, he reaches into the briefcase for the second speech that he bought, which is a barn burner on anti-communism. Now, Joe McCarthy at that moment may have known less about foreign policy and about issues of communism in the government or anywhere else than anyone in the US Senate. But he pulls out that speech, he holds it up in the air and he says, I have in my hand a list of 205 spies at the State Department, 205 people that the president should have known about, should have rooted out of the department, and they pose a real threat. What he actually had in his hand that night is anybody's guess because he never showed anyone the list and his numbers kept changing. Sometimes it was 205, sometimes it was 57, which to me was a certain magical number, which I think he might've gotten off of the uh, bottle of Heinz 57 when he stopped off for a steak on his way to that dinner. Every time somebody confronted him and said, we wanna see the list, he would tell the journalist, I left it in my briefcase, I left it on the airplane, Nobody ever got to see, but that didn't matter to Joe McCarthy. What mattered was within two days, he was on the front page of every newspaper in America. And basically his crusade was launched and he never looked back. And it's appropriate, I suppose, that we have a barking dog here when we're talking about Joseph McCarthy, maybe in the background. Um, I'm also struck by the fact that along with that list, which nobody really ever saw, but names kept cascading out of the investigations, uh, there were refugees coming across the border uh, and he was talking about them ruining America, came to believe in a lot of his own assertions along those lines. And what's striking about that, of course, is that we see President Trump, who was a kind of acolyte of Roy Cohen, who was an acolyte of Joe McCarthy, using the McCarthy playbook, scapegoating immigrants uh, the way I think it's safe to say Joe McCarthy scapegoated communists. So he did. So there are so many parallels. 
I started out wanting to basically keep Donald Trump out of the story as much as I could. And I only mentioned him by name in the preface and in the epilogue. But the fact was, as I was doing my research and as I was writing, every day it was difficult to remember whether I was reading something from 70 years ago or that day's headlines because the parallels were so dramatic. With both of them, in lieu of solutions, they pointed fingers. With both of them, when they were attacked, they aimed a wrecking ball at their assailant. With both of them, when the news was bad, they blamed the newsmen. And if you would indulge me for a minute, I'd love to read you two quotes that to me were one of the most chilling things I discovered when I was doing my research. One was one of the most famous quotes from Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign. And you and all of your listeners will remember when he said, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters. Excuse Very me, Larry, is this, is this uh, I just was wondering, are, are you comparing this to the George Gallup quote? Um, so I am comparing it to the Gallup quote. Yeah, that's and fascinating. Please, this was ahead. Trump in 2016 saying, I can stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters. Exactly 62 years before that, George Gallup, the famous polling pioneer, pens this prediction about Joe McCarthy and his supporters. He says, even if it were known that McCarthy had killed five innocent children, they would probably still go along with him. And that to me was just one more reminder that they may have been separated by 60 or 70 years, but the careers and the whole approach to politics and life of these two guys was so strikingly similar that you couldn't keep the similarities and the comparisons out of any discussion about McCarthy. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was struck by that uh, analogy, too. I'm glad that uh, we indulge you on that. I'm also wanting to indulge you about something else that does hold a parallel to Trump, and that is love affair Americans have with bullies, which you've commented on as well. Uh, anything to win and attacking and all of that, but also this, uh, you quote James Fenimore Cooper, in fact, which uh, I really enjoyed uh, talking about democracy being uh, the true theater for demagogues. And the reality is that uh, when you go through the list, whether it's, and you do go through the list, Huey Long or Father Coughlin, George Wallace, uh, Louis Farrakhan, David Duke, the list goes on and on. There really seems to be a kind of American propensity for well, what we call bullies and bullies who scapegoat. So there is, you can go back to, um, as you say, Father Coughlin to Huey Long, all of the bullies have in common, all of these demagogues have in common, playing to a very real fear that Americans are experiencing. And whether that fear is the Soviet Union and them getting a bomb and all the things that were happening just before Joe McCarthy launched his crusade, or today's economic insecurity, the fear is real. What isn't real is the solutions and the finger pointing that these guys are doing. And what Joe McCarthy did was he understood that in an era when we were learning that Julius Rosenberg had leaked atomic secrets, in an, era, in an era when we were hearing about other spies being uncovered, when we were watching China go from nationalist China to red China, and when we were about to teach our kids, our school-age kids, that if an atomic bomb struck, they should duck and cover under their desk. 
in an era like that, the fear was real. What wasn't real was the fact that Joe McCarthy was naming names of people who weren't real spies and was pointing to ways of safeguarding America that really weren't going to make us safer. Most of the 24 carrot spies were long gone by the time Joe McCarthy joined the hunt. And it was said about him in a joking way, but I think in a truthful way, that he could have been dropped into the middle of Red Square on May Day and not have recognized the communist. Again, we're talking to Larry Tai, journalist and author, and his book is called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. It was also not only the Cold War, but it was a time when Russia was seen as evil and godless, and it was certainly a great opportunity for uh, and as you say, after Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed, uh, for someone like McCarthy to rear up. But let's talk about the consequences of McCarthyism, which we started talking about. Uh, according to Ellen uh, Schrecker, who is a professor at Yeshiva University, who's done a lot of research on this, there were over 10,000 people lost their jobs uh, because they were singled out as communists or refused to cooperate with anti-communist uh, probes. But there were also suicides and lives wrecked. I mean. It's terrible damage. I want to talk with you, too, about a counter-narrative that has come into play that defends McCarthy, but talk about the damage and the consequences of his red-baiting, of his crusade. Great. So can I talk about the damage by looking at one particular person who was damaged? I tried to go back and, and get an accurate sense of the body count. And the body count at a macro level, like Ellen Schrecker describes brilliantly, about all the voices that were silenced because of McCarthyism, and it became unacceptable on university campuses, in grammar school classrooms, anywhere to talk about any leftist politics. And for a long time, it silenced the whole segment of our political debate, and it may be doing that today, when still people are pointing finger, fingers and calling people socialists as if that ends the discussion. But I want to take this down to a very personal level. One engineer at the Voice of America named Raymond Kaplan. And he was a liaison with MIT and the Voice of America on a project to build radio transmitters that would take the Voice of America all around the world. And McCarthy was attacking the Voice of America as having deliberately sabotaged the placement of these transmitters, the kind of thing that Kaplan was directly responsible for. And in a very heightened sense of anxiety, he goes to MIT to talk to his counterparts there to make sure that everybody's on the same page before they're all called before McCarthy's grilling committee. He can't find the engineers. He's in a bit of a panic, and he steps out from the main building at MIT just as a truck is beginning to cross the street, and he clearly deliberately as the truck driver slows down, jumps in front of the truck. And his death has ended up um, described by the coroner as a clear case of suicide. And that was partly because he left behind a letter to his wife and his young son, where he pleads with him. He says, I've never done anything that I consider wrong, but I can't take the pressure on my shoulders now. Clearly about to be called to testify jumps in front of a truck. I interview, so he's not around to talk to, but I interviewed his supervisor at the Voice of America. And the supervisor said in very clear terms, he said, you know, there are always a lot of nuances involved when somebody takes their own life. But this was clear, 
cause and effect all the way. The supervisor said, and I quote, if there had been no John McCarthy, we'd still have Ray Kaplan. And that was true with two US senators. It was true with a TV broadcaster. It was true with a score of people who when Joe McCarthy would stand up and say, show me somebody whose life I've, effect, whose life I've affected, I would argue that we can show a score of people whose lives he absolutely ruined in a way like he did Ray Kaplan's. And it just, to me, we have to understand this because we look at today's demagogues and we say, are they really doing any damage? And I would say they're doing damage where we can count the bodies. Well, McCarthy went after people in the State Department. He went after people in the CIA, U.S. Information Agency. As you said, the Voice of America. I mean, there were so many enemies that he had in his crosshairs who he was blaming as uh, being replete with all kinds of communist influence or communists and so forth. But to some extent, uh, he sort of went too far when he went after the army, didn't he? He did. So he took on the one institution in America that may have been too big to bully. He pointed his finger at a place called Fort Monmouth, which is in New Jersey, and it is a critical command and control center for all the armed services run by the army. And he said the same way he had with the State Department, that behind just about every pillar at the, at the fort was not just somebody with leftist instincts, there was a Soviet spy. And he took totally out of context all of people's activities. He would look back and find somebody who 20 years before had gone to a school that had active leftist groups. And he would say that proves uh, that was mainly CCNY in New York, the City College of New York. And he would say that proves Eth uh, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were there and this guy was there. And that proves he must be part of this nest of moles. He would find activities of somebody's sister-in-law or cousin or uncle, and there would be guilt by a hundred obscure associations. And he did that to the point where the army finally decided to push back. And there was such friction between McCarthy and the army that his old subcommittee in the Senate decided they had to investigate. And they held what to that time were the most famous hearings ever, the so-called Army McCarthy hearings, where they looked at what both sides were saying. And in the end, they decided that the Army had capitulated too quickly to McCarthy and given in too much, but that McCarthy had bullied the Army. What really mattered, though, wasn't the Senate's verdict. It was the public's verdict. And after tuning in day after day, the public concluded that this was not the hero that they had begin the hearings believing that McCarthy was, this was the town bully. At the start of the hearings, his popularity as measured by Gallup was a full 50% of Americans thinking he was doing a great job. The only guy in America who was more popular than Joe McCarthy at the start of the hearings and at the start of 1954 was President Eisenhower. By that August and the end of the hearings, his numbers had gone from 50% to 34%, and the gig was up. His colleagues stopped supporting him. He was quickly censured, and it was really all over. And it was all by picking the wrong target and doing himself in. Of course, I suspect uh, that a lot of uh, what eventually worked against McCarthy was when Joseph Welch so memorably uttered, uh, have you no decency, sir? And what we learned from your book is that 
as much as those uh, TV hearings that were televised showed the lack of decency in McCarthy, there really is um, something to wrangle with here because about two-thirds of what McCarthy did was under lock and key and secret hearings, as you point out in your book. And in those hearings, uh, I think you make a case for him being far more indecent, uh, to use the word that Joseph Welsh word, uh, than he was in the open hearings that were televised. So I'd love to say one thing about Welch and then talk for a minute about the hearings. And the thing about Welch is the words that he uttered, you have no sense of decency, sir, um, were in fact, they may have been the most famous words ever uttered by a lawyer anywhere, um, at least up until that time. And those words were seen as the turning point in the hearing in a really dramatic moment. The truth was that Welch said that in response to McCarthy's attacking his young associate for supposedly having leftist ties. But Welch was, had rehearsed those words and he knew whether it was his young associate or something else, that at some point McCarthy would like somebody who sees a sign that says wet paint, not be able to resist touching it, that McCarthy would do something outrageous. And he was ready to pounce with that same line, whatever the circumstances. And that line was so effective in part because America had already concluded the same thing, that this guy did have no decency. But as you say, had we known what McCarthy was doing behind closed doors, we would have reached that conclusion a lot sooner. It was, with, with most politicians, you would expect that they would be more outrageous when the cameras were turned on than when the cameras were off and the reporters were barred from the hearing room. With McCarthy, it was the reverse. He ceased even pretending in these closed door hearings to care about the rights of the accused, who he summarily determined were guilty. He held one man hearings, which was in violation of longstanding Senate tradition. But the only thing worse than one man hearings was when McCarthy would take off for half a day and would put somebody like Roy Cohn in charge to do the berating on his behalf. And what was intriguing to me was when you studied the transcripts, there was a decided difference in tone and in demeanor between the morning sessions and the afternoon. In the morning, when McCarthy went in stone sober, he was relatively reasonable. In the afternoon, after he had had his standard lunch of hamburger, a raw onion, and whiskey, he lost his patience much more quickly. And knowing what we know now, knowing having seen all of his medical records from Bethesda Naval Hospital, we can track the heavy drinking he was doing most days and the effect that that had on him in those hearings. We can also conclude, as you did, that he did not die of hepatitis, that he died of alcoholism, and that uh, to some extent, uh, the later facts that, we, that you were able to gather, uh, which is a remarkable job, by the way, uh, point to that conclusion. I want to uh, point to the possibility of listeners joining us in this discussion. I also want to mention that Larry Ty's book, again, is called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, and even goes into some things that many of you may not have known about. I was quite educated by it. McCarthy was actually uh, labeled a Nazi apologist because he defended, we can get into that to some extent, defended uh, a number of Nazi war criminals uh, in, uh, from the Panzer Division uh, who killed U.S. troops. Uh, I also want to talk about this counter-narrative that I mentioned, but I also want to hear from our listeners. I know there are many of you who have your own insights or questions that you might have, and what questions do you have about Senator Joe McCarthy or 
for that matter, what memories or impressions do you have of the McCarthy era? You can give us a call right now, and I invite you to join the program at our toll-free number. The number to call is 866-733-6786. Number again for your calls, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. Again, our guest is Larry Ty, award-winning reporter for the Boston Globe and also a Demon Fellow at Harvard, now the author of a new biography of Joseph McCarthy called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with journalist and author Larry Tai about his new book, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. And if you have questions about Senator McCarthy or if you have memories or impressions of the McCarthy era, you can give us a call now and join the program. The number to call, 866-733-6786. I'll repeat it, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. And let's go to a caller in Oakland. Diana joins us. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my question. I was just hoping that you would address how the McCarthy hearings in San Francisco triggered the civil rights movement here, the political movement of the 60s. It really kind of started on the stairs of San Francisco City Hall and I would like to hear more about it. Larry Tye? Sure. So I'm not sure exactly what the nexus is there. I think McCarthy triggered I'm, I'm lots sorry, of movements. I think she's thinking about the House on American Activities, which were uh, some of them uh, in San Francisco officially, but they were separate from McCarthy. In fact, they're, they're, so they were the precursor. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. They were the precursor. And what's interesting about those hearings is the House Un-American Activities Committee formed in 1938. A guy from Texas, a congressman named Martin Dyes, chairs the, the uh, committee. And the truth was that he exposed real spies. He, he also set the table for all of McCarthy's bad behavior. But he came up with real names that mattered more than McCarthy. And had he been half as charismatic as McCarthy and half as effective in tapping into public sentiments, we'd be calling it diism instead of McCarthyism. But even though McCarthy came to the hunt late, his whole personality was so enormous that the movement that shouldn't have been named after him was. But as you point out in your book, those he did ferret out were mostly young and idealistic and politically naive. They were certainly not necessarily culpable when it came to such things as sedition and, and treason. He did, however, uh, expose some communists, uh, nearly all small town union organizers and low level bureaucrats. But there is this counter narrative that McCarthy was onto something that he's been demonized. And I'd like you to address that if you could before we go to more callers. Uh, because there were a couple of legitimate uh, investigations, uh, one under the State Department, one under the Senate. And there were also the Verona Papers, which uh, were revealed from the USSR back in 1995, where 
real penetration was supposedly exposed, uh, and not supposedly, I think it's pretty authentic. Um, so the argument goes that McCarthy's been demonized and McCarthy really uh, was onto something. There were real communists uh, and maybe he got too exuberant or got into a witch hunt that was too excessive. I'm sure you've seen this argument, but it's, it's really not as bad as people have made it into McCarthyism. Your thoughts? So I'd like to address that, and my whole book is really addressing that. The, there has been a counter-narrative, and the counter-narrative is also counterfactual, and the records that nobody had seen counter-narrative or any other narrative of all of his personal and professional papers and all of his military records generally showed that Joe McCarthy was more rather than less sinister than we thought. The Venona papers make clear that there were real spies there. They just happened not to be the people with a handful of exceptions that Joe McCarthy targeted. And the more we know, the more he looks bad in most ways. But I want to, in fairness to Joe McCarthy and to the counter-narrative, point out one thing that history judged McCarthy as guilty of that he wasn't, and that was inflating and lying about his war record. Joe McCarthy ran for office the first time this, uh, calling himself Tail Gunner Joe. He came back saying, I'm a war hero, and it's my generation's chance. And the press looked at all the embellishments that he had done on everything else and said, no, you weren't a war hero. You were a land-based intelligence operative. You inflated your record. You got your medals for political reasons. And it just, it's a fraud. And the truth is we can now see, because in those files that I looked at, there were Joe McCarthy's handwritten real-time diary when he was in the South Pacific serving. And we see that he was a land-based intelligence agent, but he volunteered for missions, many of which he flew as a real tail gunner under enemy fire. We have letters from his squad mates there who say, I took Joe McCarthy up on a mission where he was my tail gunner. And we see that in this critical piece of his narrative, this first important chapter, he was telling the truth. And I think there are two interesting things about that. One is, if you lie often enough, we're not going to believe you when you're actually telling the truth. But the other more mysterious question for me is why, if he had the evidence there in his files, didn't he point to that evidence and say, reporters, you got this wrong. I'm a truth teller here. And I think because for a guy who had no shame about just about anything in his life, the one area where he did have shame was his military record, his Marine Corps record. And I think he felt if people aren't going to believe me about something that meant so much to me as what I did in the military fighting for my country, the heck with them, and I'm not going to ballyhoo the evidence that I have. Let me bring another caller on here. We go to Sharon in Oakland. Sharon, join us. Good morning. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I just wanted to tell a little story about when I was probably five or six, uh, my dad had fought in the Lincoln Brigade, and, and incidentally, a lot of the Lincoln Brigade fighters were targeted uh, by McCarthy for sure because they were at our door, these two guys in trench coats, uh, asking my dad for names, basically. They wanted uh, some kind of info from him, and my dad really essentially slammed the door on them. And I never heard my mother say a four-letter word until that day after they left. <laughs> well, Sharon, thank you for that call. Good to hear from you. The Lincoln Brigade 
was filled with a lot of heroic uh, men who went off to fight uh, Franco in Spain because they felt, uh, I think, justifiably that if uh, Franco succeeded, uh, then indeed in that civil war, then the Nazis would ascend. But I'm wondering uh, about, th there were certainly many, me I knew members of the Lincoln Brigade, and many of them did have strong flirtations with communism, didn't they, Larry? Um, so they did. And I want to just say one thing about Sharon and her dad. I don't know her. I didn't know her dad. But the idea of slamming the door in the face of investigators took a heck of a lot of courage. And a lot of people who did that said they weren't going to testify, slam the door, paid a price for it, paid a price for it where the investigators would go to their workplace and basically ask questions that they knew were going to get them in trouble and sometimes lose their jobs. So just having fought in the Lincoln Brigade or just slamming the door could have exacted a price. And I would say that Sharon, your dad was a courageous guy. Yeah, yeah. Kudos to you uh, in terms of your legacy, Sharon. And thank you again for that call. Do you think, uh, Larry, uh, who do you think of when you think of people who really stood up to McCarthy? We mentioned Joseph Welsh. A lot of people have said, no, Edward R. Murrow came a little bit late in the game, although he's gotten a lot of credit. Uh, there's also the sense that uh, Eisenhower didn't stand up enough to McCarthy when he was doing a lot of his damage and so forth. Who are the people that are their heroes? So you're right about Eisenhower. That, to me, a, a lot of historians have let him off the hook and say he just waited till McCarthy would do himself in. But in fact, Eisenhower's brother, Milton Eisenhower, from the moment Ike took office, was whispering in his ear and saying, give up a bit of your popularity and take on this bully. And Ike waited two years and waited while people were watching their careers smashed and their lives ruined. So that was a profile in having no courage. The journalist who gets all the credit, as you point out, is Edward R. Murrow. And Murrow did, um, in 1954, air some shows that were incredibly damning about McCarthy. But that was, again, four years after McCarthy launched his crusade. And Murrow himself says, I was late to the game. The journalist who I think deserves the most credit is a guy who at the time was the most popular columnist in America. And my guess is that very few of your listeners remember him, a guy named Drew Pearson, who almost from the moment that McCarthy delivered that speech, the Lincoln Day speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, Pearson was out there attacking him and calling him precisely the fraud that he was. And Pearson took it on the chin in two ways. One is when they ran into one another at a supper club in Washington, McCarthy physically pummeled Pearson. And had it not been for a great Quaker peacemaker named Richard Nixon stepping between them, he really would have suffered damage. Then Pearson watched as McCarthy went after his sponsor and basically convinced the sponsor to stop sponsoring Pearson's radio show. So he was a hero. There are senators who are heroes in a way that we seldom remember them including a guy from Maryland named Millard Tidings, who stood up almost after, immediately after that February 1950 speech, wrote a report calling McCarthy a fraud and a hoax, and watched as McCarthy came into Maryland, recruited a candidate to, win, to run against him, brought in money to support that candidate, brought in his bag of dirty tricks, and Tidings went down to defeat. And that sent a clarion message across Congress you take on Joe, uh, Joe McCarthy at your own risk. 
And there was great fear of Joe McCarthy, as there is for the President of the United States now, Donald Trump. I'm struck also by your mentioning Nixon, former President of the United States, as a peacemaker. He was a, he was a Quaker. He used to be called the Quaker Hawk, uh, kind of oxymoron. But he was also, to some extent, uh, diligent in his own anti-communism uh, crusades. Uh, when he ran against Helen Hagen Douglas, uh, for that matter, uh, you know, he was calling her a communist and implying that she and other political enemies of his were communists. So this was not just singularly focused on McCarthy. It spread out throughout the United States with many politicians. Let me get another caller on here, and that's Michael, who's joining us from Boston, from your old territory. Larry, welcome, Michael. Yeah, yeah uh, I have a brother named Larry. Uh, Nixon was actually considered kind of on the left of the Republican Party. He was their point man on civil rights at the time. Um, I both don't uh, hold with the counter-narrative, but also think there were very good reasons to be anti-communist, among them Stalin and Beria, um, who were madmen and terrible, terrible people, and had the bomb. Uh, but So my question is, what damage did McCarthy do to legitimate anti-communism? So, Michael, I think that's a great question, and I would argue that whatever damage McCarthy did to communism, he did a whole lot more damage to legitimate anti-communism. As Michael says, the Soviet Union was a real enemy then and an enemy to be feared. And Joe McCarthy, most legitimate anti-communists felt, was doing their movement a disservice. They thought that because McCarthy was going out there and naming names that weren't real, people therefore wouldn't believe people who were naming real names. And I think that that was one of the ironies that he would do more damage to anti-communism than communism. Let me go to a tweet, uh, yet another Michael here, who says, what attracted Bobby Kennedy to McCarthy? As a young lawyer, Kennedy went to work on McCarthy's subcommittee, even making McCarthy godfather to his first child. And there's uh, sort of a, a footnote to this in, in your book, Larry, you write about Ethel Kennedy talking about well, McCarthy as being just a kind of normal guy who uh, just wanted to hold baby Kathleen uh, and dote on her. Uh, so let's talk about Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, he did a whole biography on him. We talked about that biography on Forum, and he was clearly very drawn to Joe McCarthy and to what Joe McCarthy stood for. And some of that had to do with the evil of communism. Uh, so he was very drawn. And one of the things that drew me to this topic as a book was my interview with Ethel Kennedy for my Bobby biography, where she said, Joe McCarthy might be a monster to much of America, but to us, he was just plain good fun. And I thought, this is not the Joe McCarthy I know, and I'm intrigued about it. Bobby Kennedy went to work for Joe McCarthy as the first real job that Bobby had out of law school. He went to work for him partly because Papa Joe Kennedy said, go to work for him. And Joe Kennedy had given enough money to Joe McCarthy that when he called and said, hire my son, Joe McCarthy said, sure. Bobby Kennedy also went to work for him because that was a very different Bobby Kennedy back in 1953 than the Bobby Kennedy we would know at the end of his life. That was a Bobby Kennedy who would say to reporters, Joe McCarthy is the one guy who's really standing up to communists the way we have to. Why are you giving him such a hard time? The early Bobby Kennedy was a chip off his father's block, was an anti-communist, and really liked Joe McCarthy. The question, one of the intriguing questions to me is, Joe McCarthy was looking for somebody as what he called his chief counsel, the chief of staff. And he ended up hiring an arrogant, brilliant lawyer from New York named Roy Cohn. His second choice for that job was Bobby Kennedy. Roy Cohn reinforced every bad instinct Joe McCarthy had. 
and helped encourage him to do all the things that led to his downfall. One counter, one question that history can't answer, but I'm intrigued by is, what would Joe McCarthy have been like if he had hired Bobby Kennedy instead of Roy Cohn? Well, let me read uh, some comments that are coming in. Here's Marjorie who writes, I am from Nina, Wisconsin, McCarthy's hometown. My dad told me many times as a child that McCarthy was the town drunk and would be visibly drunk in town most days. My dad joked that that was before he found his calling in the Senate. And Lloyd writes, we see demagogues as early as children in elementary school. For many generations, it has been acceptable for bullies to exercise their bigotry, chauvinism, homophobia, racism, etc., with an impunity that has been permitted by parents and teachers alike. They are both the product of those who turn a blind eye or silently approve. And maybe it's time that we talked about uh, McCarthy's uh, not only homophobia, despite the fact that he was very close with Roy Cohen, uh, although Roy Cohen was closeted his whole life, right up until his death, in fact, uh, as a homosexual, but also his anti-Semitism, which uh, you pretty much catalog here as well. Uh, on both scores, uh, he scores highly. He scores high on both scores. His relationship with Roy Cohn is intriguing on both scores because, as you say, Roy Cohn was closeted gay and he was Jewish. And a lot of people said that McCarthy hired Roy Cohn, and McCarthy himself suggested this to friends because he was getting attacked as being anti-Semitic. So Roy Cohn was a fig leaf. I'm hiring a Jew, so I can't be an anti-Semite. The anti, the gay bashing, to me, was one more tragic piece of Joe McCarthy's story. He would go after any easy scapegoat that he knew Americans would get on board with. And he said he was going after gays because the fact that they had to be closeted and he said made them vulnerable to blackmail, that if a Soviet operative were to find out that somebody was gay, in order to keep that secret, he would blackmail them. Well, if anybody was subject to blackmail, it was Joe McCarthy, who was an enormous gambler, who was a drunk, who had all kinds of things in his closets that he would never have wanted to come out. So that wasn't the reason. I think the reason he went after gays was the same reason he went after communists, which is they made an easy target and he would win public support by bashing. There's even a footnote in your book that suggests he might have been a pedophile. Could you elaborate on that? So there were charges that he was. There were all kinds of charges in his FBI file that the FBI investigated and said it couldn't confirm that he himself was gay and that he went to Washington as a bachelor senator. He, it took him a long time in his courtship of the woman who became his wife and who started out as his assistant to ever being, be willing to um, suggest marriage. And I don't have any proof that McCarthy was gay. I certainly don't have proof that he was a pedophile. And I wouldn't even want to be discussing these things because it's unfair given we have no proof, except that Joe McCarthy never gave anybody else any benefits of a doubt. Charges were enough for him to convict. Again, our guest is Larry Tai. His book is called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. And here's Diamond Dave. Good morning, Dave. Hello. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. You're on the air. Oh, good. I've had a last year. Oh, it's so good to be back. Anyway, uh, well, of course, you know, I'm old. I'm 82. So I have memories. I was living in a political household in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the 50s. And what I remember is this. The television. Television was now got that big and the center of everything. And before McCarthy showed up with McCarthy hearings, 
which are House on America activity uh, hearings, which are on Tehavi Ayanara, a member of the Communist Party. And uh, that was televised. And uh, then it was realized that was, uh, the, the people took an interest in that. And they were kind of boring. So this is when, uh, this is when, of course, the South still had like primaries. This is South, uh, the South of these racists, the racists, uh, the congressmen, the senators who came up and got in the House of America Activities Committee. Was there. Dave, you've got a long memory, and it's always good to hear from you. I haven't heard from you in a long time. Uh, but like so many others uh, of Dave's era, those people were locked in front of the television set watching those McCarthy hearings just like they did Watergate and perhaps like they did the impeachment of Donald Trump. They did, and that television made all the difference, as Dave suggested, watching Joe McCarthy there perform was the easiest and quickest way to rob him of the mantle of a hero. But I also want to make a sort of shameless pitch right now that it was journalism in a big way that lifted Joe McCarthy up and that brought him down. And I think we're here talking on public radio and it's not your fundraising drive, but I think listeners ought to support good journalism because the best, the best firmament, the best safety wall against the demagogue is having journalists point out what is true and what is made up. And that is the thing that demagogues fear most. Well, here's a question from Wynne that kind of uh, ties back to something you were just talking about. Uh, he says, could you compare and contrast the role of the press in the McCarthy era and now? Yes. So Joe McCarthy was really brilliant at exploiting the vulnerabilities of the media. He, it was no accident that he picked a place like Wheeling, West Virginia to unleash that barn burner of a speech because he realized that if he were to make his charges against the State Department in Washington, where reporters could pick up the phone and knew just who to call on deadline at the State Department to get a response, that would be a bad way to do it for him. If he were to release the speech in the middle of the afternoon, where reporters had all day to get the other side, it would be a bad idea. So you go to an outlying burg like Wheeling, West Virginia, you give a dinner speech and you release it on deadline where the reporters either take your version or nothing and have to go to press with it. And he knew every deadline pressure and every way to exploit the press. He charmed the press when he could do that. He attacked and blamed the press when he knew that would play. And he used the media of his time brilliantly, much like Donald Trump, 70 years later, is using Twitter and social media and every, the, every sort of new incarnation of the media today. Bullies understand how to make the media into their megaphone. Yeah, and I know you did a biography of Edward Bernays, who was a kind of PR pioneer. You can learn a lot about how the media operates uh, from that biography as well. Um, and uh, one of my early boyhood heroes, uh, Larry Ty, did a biography of Satchel Paige, a uh, great African-American pitcher. We're talking to Larry Ty. He's a journalist and author, and his new book is called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. And let's bring Ken aboard. Ken, you're on. President's uh, Truman or Eisenhower uh, support or try to undermine or make public statements about McCarthy? Reaction on the executive to McCarthy, I think, is what he wants to know. Yes. So there was reaction behind the scenes where Eisenhower was telling his brother 
and all of his top aides that McCarthy was a really bad guy, but his approach, and this was his approach as a general during World War II, was when possible, let the enemy do themselves in. And that would have been a brilliant approach and historians applaud him for what they call the hidden hand approach. To me, it was more like the empty glove approach. It meant that for two years, McCarthy reigned without any check. And the only guy who could have checked him back then, the only guy with enough popularity was Eisenhower and he was missing in action. Here's a comment from Jocelyn. A lot of memories opened up uh, in this hour. She writes, when I was five years old in San Francisco, I remember my mom ironing and listening to the McCarthy hearings and shaking her head. She explained to me what was happening as the hearings went on, as the hearings went on. And I think that opened my mind to politics, certainly opened a lot of minds uh, at the time. And uh, as far as open minds were concerned, uh, McCarthy also had his battles with academia. Let's talk about his battle with Harvard President Nathan Pusey for a moment, because uh, that was a favorite target of his. It was. So Nathan Pusey had been president of Lawrence University in McCarthy's hometown of Appleton, Wisconsin. And when he was an important pillar in the community McCarthy depended on for support, McCarthy did nothing to attack him. But Pusey was attacking McCarthy. He was raising questions about how true his charges were, and he was one of his most effective critics. The day that Pusey was named as president of Harvard, all bets were off in terms of any restraint. McCarthy went after him. Pusey became part of the Eastern establishment that McCarthy hated, and their battles were a true legend. McCarthy and his supporters referred to Harvard as Kremlin on the Charles, meaning the Charles River, and it was the perfect symbol of everything. McCarthy was not just anti-red, he was anti-establishment in a way that agrarian populists have often been in American history. And here's Ken. Ken, join us. You're on forum. Ken there? Oh, we'll try to get back to Ken or Ken get back to us. I was going to also ask you about Malmedy, which I mentioned earlier, the massacre in that Belgian city, because uh, it's still kind of a big question mark in my mind. You go into detail how these U.S. troops were mowed down with machine guns and they were had their... Uh, skulls crushed with rifle butts. Uh, these were clearly war crimes uh, against Americans. And there was a trial in Dachau in 1946. Joe McCarthy was there essentially defending uh, the Nazis. Uh, and uh, Joe McCarthy, well, certainly was branded as a Nazi apologist, but at the same time uh, defended uh, this on the basis of some kind of equity. Uh, he was a quarter German. I don't know if that ties in at all, but the, the reality is by the 1950s, all those former SS officers were freed and the commander was freed in 1956. So uh, give us the details of this. Yes, so the details are that it was classic McCarthy. And if we were paying attention at that Malmody, um, at the Malmody investigation, we would have seen things that cropped up later in his anti-communist crusade. It was taking a bit of evidence and there were some irregularities in the investigations of the Malmedy perpetrators. But the fact was they were guilty. The fact was the investigators had not done the things that McCarthy was charging in terms of coercing testimony. And the fact was that McCarthy's insensitivity in saying that it wasn't surprising that those investigators went overboard because some of the investigators were Jewish, it was extraordinary. And it was extraordinary enough that his fellow senators stood up against him and didn't buy what he was suggesting, but it also helped 
free some of the perpetrators and it helped raise questions about what goes down in history as the worst massacre of American civilians during World War II. I'm sorry, of American troops during World War II. All these guys who were massacred were holding up the white surrender flag. Yeah, this was a story that really needed to be told. And I'm glad that you, uh, you also single, talked about uh, McCarthy singling out Jews in 1953 as communists in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, at the base that you had alluded to earlier that he went after. And there's lots here in this book. Uh, it's a tome, and it is, uh, again, called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. The author, again, is Larry Tai. And one quick comment from Jane, who says, I was 10 when the Army McCarthy hearings were televised. I remember them, and though I didn't understand what they were all about, I was riveted. One of my mother's best friends, an excellent elementary school teacher in Los Angeles, was purged probably in 1952 when a Senate subcommittee was investigating communism in schools. My mother was also an elementary school teacher, and I always wonder why she and my father were targeted, weren't targeted by association. Well, they didn't get everybody, but they got too many people undeservedly, and uh, the story is all in Larry's book. Larry, good to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Great to be back. Thank you. And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.